You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. All Black History Month, we've been sharing stories of Black resistance. Our final story about Black resistance this month is about resisting the urge to forget, even when remembering is incredibly painful. And just a warning, there are descriptions of graphic violence in this episode. My name is L. Lamar Wilson, Leroy Lamar Wilson. I was born in Mariana, Florida, Jackson County Hospital specifically. I'm Ben Montgomery. I've spent 20 years as a newspaper reporter, most recently at the Tampa Bay Times. So Mariana, of course, is the county seat, and it is a picture postcard southern town. Um, You know, if you drove down Lafayette Street, which is the main street, you would drive between low-slung, well-kept main street businesses. Um, But as soon as you escape the city limits, you're in, like, the real south. You're in rural Florida. You're driving through some marshland and driving through um, cotton fields. You get to see the absolute gorgeous natural beauty that people travel around the world to get to, you know, go to retreats to get to. That was every day. You know, I could walk in my backyard and see nothing but green at night. The stars, so many stars. My idea of Florida all growing up in, you know, Oklahoma and going to school in Arkansas and living for a bit in Texas and New York. The, the idea of Florida was the ideal of Florida. It was like Disney World and sugar sand beaches and retirees and everyone's happy and pastel colors and Hawaiian shirts. I never really thought of Florida as like the South. the last century, one of the most infamous lynchings in America happened in my town, Mariana, Florida. It is a place that is haunted in its history by brutality, whites against blacks. So that kind of beauty juxtaposed with a sort of traumatic, devastating, horrific history, even with all of that. It is my home because I just love how I feel when I go there. Eighty-five years ago, a black man named Claude Neal was lynched in Mariana, Florida, in a rural county that borders Alabama to the north and Georgia to the east. His murder has been referred to as one of the most violent and well-attended lynchings in U.S. history. And listeners, it's likely you've never heard of the story of Claude Neal. I hadn't heard about it before you produced this story, Shireen. Well, poet Lamar Wilson, who we just heard from, he was born and raised in Mariana, Florida. And he only stumbled upon the story when he was in the Jackson County Library doing research for a high school paper. And we're going to hear from Lamar in a few minutes. Journalist Ben Montgomery first learned about Claude Neal at a different library years later. The Smathers Library at the University of Florida in Gainesville going through microfilm for the newspapers in Mariana, Florida, uh, the city of Southern Charm, they call it. Ben was investigating another horror story, one about a juvenile reform school called the Dozier School for Boys, where boys were brutally abused for decades. And he was going through all that microfilm, trying to find out what happened to a boy who died there in 1934. And 
the week of his death, the headlines were dominated by the story of the lynching of Claude Neal. And I'd never heard of the lynching of Claude Neal. I'd never heard of Claude Neal. And so it was sort of jarring to me to see uh, newspaper stories accounting for this, um, the scene, which by some estimates involved 5,000 people coming from nine southern states to participate in this, in this murder. Sometime in the next few weeks, I just started Googling, like, Claude Neal, what, if anything, has happened since October of 1934 in regards to him. And that uh, simple Googling led me to um, an online message board where one of his descendants, a guy named Orlando Williams, had essentially posted a couple of paragraphs saying, my uncle was lynched in Mariana, Florida in 1934. Nobody was ever held accountable for this crime. We need a reporter to tell our story. On October 18, 1934, Lola Kennedy, a 20-something farm girl, she went out to water the hogs, and she never came back. And uh, her family began to notice that she was missing, and so they went. They went out to look for her and eventually uh, found her uh, body on the edge of the hog pen. She had been killed. I've seen stories that suggest that she'd been hit over the head with a pine bough. Some suspicion uh, that she had been sexually assaulted. Very quickly, the uh, family notifies the sheriff. The sheriff responds, starts doing field interviews, and quickly comes up with the name Claude Neal. What I know about Claude Neal is that he was a 23-year-old farmhand. He was illiterate, couldn't read or write. He was sort of short and scrawny. Had a, a, a wife, probably a common-law wife at the time. He had a daughter. His family, uh, folks in the black community in that area, thought that uh, Claude and Lola had a relationship. That they'd you know, been intimate, been boyfriend, girlfriend, but it was, of course, kept secret. The sheriff finds Claude Neal sleeping in a corn crib a few farms away later that day. He arrests him. Um, word is spreading now across the county very quickly that Lola Kennedy has been killed and possibly raped um, and that the sheriff has made an arrest in the case. And uh, posses start forming to exact justice. The sheriff, uh, Flake Shambliss, started to make moves to protect his prisoner uh, so that they could have a fair trial. Within about 24 hours, he decides that it's not safe to keep Claude Neal in Jackson County. And this starts what amounts to about six days of shuffling Claude Neal from county to county, place to place, so they might escape the mob. And every place he's moved from, the mob shows up within a few hours. These are gun-hung, drunk, uh, white men. Claude Neal winds up in Bruton, Alabama sometime around October 25th of 1934. Bruton is a very small town. The mob gets word that he's being held there. They load up into a couple of cars and drive into town after dark, threaten the jailer when they arrive uh, with dynamite shotguns. The jailer hands over the keys, essentially, and, uh, 
and they kidnap Claude Neal. They drive him back across the state line about 50 miles south into Florida. Meanwhile, um, because so much time has elapsed, six days at this point, word has spread that there's going to be a lynch party at the Kennedy place. And uh, depending on whose estimates you believe, and I've seen anywhere from 2,000 to 5,000, um, a good number of people show up and they stand around bonfires waiting for the committee of six, as they were called, to turn over Claude Neal. They wanted to torture him to get him to say he was sorry and that he committed the crime. He had already uh, allegedly signed a confession, you know, with an ex. Uh, who knows whether that was coerced? Who knows whether he actually signed it? You know, I have doubts about that confession. In any event, um, the plan of the Committee of Six was not to kill him, was to turn him over to Lola Kennedy's father, because this was the custom. And they tortured him. Um, I can you know, get into as little or as much detail as you want, but they poked him with hot irons, and they strung him up, and they let him down, and they fired bullets into his body, and they cut off his genitals and make him eat them and make him say that they're good. And eventually they take the torture too far, if you read what they say, uh, and they kill him. The Committee of Six was sort of regretful of that, and they um, put his body on the running board of a car, and they drove from Pirai Landing, where they had, um, had killed him. They drove from there to where the Kennedy family lived, and uh, when they got close, they rolled the body off and dragged him up to the Kennedy farm. All the people who were there, standing around bonfires, waiting for the lynch party, uh, took turns with the corpse and um, did you know, all sorts of bar barbaric acts, including severing toes and fingers, and um, took their turns with the corpse. They again tied it to a car and dragged it into Marianne and hung Claude Neal's corpse from an oak tree in front of the courthouse so that the sheriff could see it from his office window. They took pictures with it. It was snapped before sunup on October 27, 1934. It shows a thin, short man hanging by his neck from an oak tree in front of the Jackson County Courthouse. The man is naked and mutilated. Blood streaks his skin. A rope is tied crudely around his neck. It is not a noose, not meant for killing, for he was dead when he arrived. This hanging was for display. His missing fingers and toes were community keepsakes. At the edge of the frame stands a white man wearing a jacket and a hat and a blank stare. The photograph sold for 50 cents on the street that day. Sixteen years before Ben Montgomery's article, Spectacle, was published in the Tampa Bay Times, Lamar Wilson learned what happened to Claude Neal. But not from the elders in his community who lived through it. That moment and everything that came after was so traumatic. Something that nobody else who didn't go through it would understand, you know? And so the thing that they could do was just know that God had brought them through it and to raise us not to be afraid of white people, to be afraid that it could happen to us. But 
once Lamar found out what happened to Claude Neal, he wanted his death to be memorialized. And that's what he's been trying to do in his own way for years. More on that after the break. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Target. Entrepreneur Ray Phillips reflects on the mentorship and friendship he's received from Target supplier diversity lead Mike Alexander. It was awesome to have a person like Michael to have him help us on our journey with growing our relationship with Target. And every step of the way, he's just been instrumental in our growth and understanding of the process. And it's just been an awesome relationship from the beginning. Learn more about how Target supports diverse entrepreneurs at Target.com slash Founders We Love. Support also comes from Netflix's Contodo, presenting Brown Love, a new podcast that aims to bring together the best and brightest of Latino Hollywood to get real about the industry and all the things Latinx communities are talking about on your timeline. Each week, the show features a roundtable of Latino actors, including Diane Guerrero from Orange is the New Black and Jessica Marie Garcia from On My Block. New episodes of Brown Love drop every Tuesday. Subscribe now where you listen to podcasts. You might know Nick Kroll from his very raunchy animated show on Netflix, Big Mouth. Are you the puberty fairy? The puberty fairy? I'm the hormone monster. I'm not a fairy. Well, now he's starring as a romantic lead in a movie set at the Olympics. Actor and comedian Nick Kroll, next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Shireen, just Shireen, Code Switch. Lamar Wilson was a high school student when he first learned what happened to Claude Neal in his hometown of Mariana in Jackson County, Florida. In 1994-95, I can't remember quite the year, I went into the Jackson County Public Library to do my book report on Jackson County, and I went to the section where there were books on Jackson County and found this green book that leapt off the shelf to me because of the title, Anatomy of a Lynching, and I flipped the pages and started reading the opening pages. And when I saw 1934, I did the math. My grandmother, who was born in 1905, she would have been 29. She was alive. Other members of my family would have been alive. She happened to be in the car waiting for me with my great aunt, her sister. And I got in the car and I said, Mom Mary, did you know Claude Neal? And I could see her sink in the seat. And they wouldn't say anything. The whole ride home, they didn't say anything. And when I pressed, when I got home, the only thing my grandmother said was, I told that boy to leave that white girl alone. I told that boy to leave that white girl alone. I could see that even though they were in their 80s, they were like children all over again. The fear in their eyes, that mortification was palpable. And then to know that one of those women who taught me how to pray, Mrs. Allie Mae Smith, oh, she's his daughter. I was piecing it together. These were people in my church. And I was like, how do I ask her? It was just something that I figured I would find a way to talk about. I just knew that that was not the right time and I was too young to process it beyond a report from a book by, you know, 
witness X. That's how it was reported in the book, witness X, you know, source Y. These people wouldn't even give their names. Resurrection Sunday. It was my mission to tell this story. It took me a long time. I told that boy to leave that white girl alone. The only words breaking the silence of the rest of that ride. The only words her brother says at home. I told that boy to leave that white girl alone. Their script, a shroud over faces, suddenly childlike. Each crease around their eyes, a dog-eared page the boy can never read. Flash forward, I've written a book, a poem in it about the lynching called Resurrection Sunny. is nominated for a Pushcart Prize. I'm feeling yucky, ashamed that I am benefiting off of this tragedy. And I had to get it out of me. I went back to that little boy on the mourner's bench or in church praying, and I thought, what could I do? And some still small voice said, run, take that land back. Do like Joshua on the Jericho wall, walk around those streets and claim them. It was advertised like the Super Bowl. Come to Mariana for the picnic. And so people came with their food, ready to sit on the lawn and watch this event, which is sick, right? And so I really wanted to make sure that I traveled all the places that his body was dragged. That's what I was going to do. I was going to run and sing and pray on my own. And I decided I was going to do that. I let my mom and dad know. I let Miss Allie Mae know. I let her family know. And then on a whim, I announced on Facebook, Facebook that I was going to run. And then Ben Montgomery, who had been covering the case and had written a long story called Spectacle for the Tampa Bay Times, messaged me on Facebook and said, I'm coming to run with you. In my work on this story, I became aware of his name. And I think the first thing that I heard was that there's a book that came out in 1979 that was like an academic study on the lynching of Claude Neal. It was called The Anatomy of a Lynching. And a very unemotional, kind of dry, recounting of what happened and the social factors at play um, that would lead to this kind of historic act of terrorism. And I heard that somebody kept stealing that book out of the library. It's like he would go back to check it out again and be gone and it would never show back up. So he had taken it on himself to perpetually provide the library with a copy of Anatomy of a Lynching. And I thought, that's the coolest thing ever. We became Facebook friends, and I saw on Facebook that he, he was going back on October 26th, on the anniversary of the Colonial lynching, to run the 13 or 14 mile path that the lynchers dragged Claudineal's body from uh, the Kennedy House to the courthouse in Mariana. I uh, am not a giant runner, but, um, but I, 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 I want to do that. I want to do that with him. Was this weird? Does this create some kind of journalistic conflict? I didn't talk to anybody about it. I didn't like call my editor to make sure it was okay. I think uh, I just decided this is something I'm going to do. 
because I'm in constant contact with some of the wards who were at the Dozier School who are now old men, they're in their 70s and some of them in their 80s, um, I mentioned to one of them, hey, I'm going to go to Jackson County this weekend to run with a, uh, a friend on the route that they took, Claude Neal, and he said, we're going to run cover for you. <laughs> <laughs> These are guys who hate Jackson County, by the way. They, they're not from there. They feel scarred by their experience there. Basically, they drove behind us and in front of us and just made sure nothing bad happened, and, uh, and they came out to... Um, support Lamar in what he was doing, just really to make sure he was safe. Several of the White House boys who had survived the Dozier School for Boys assaults all white men from South Florida, Central and South Florida, drove eight to nine hours to ride their motorbikes and run with me and ride their bicycles. Once we got to the courthouse, I just sang Strange Fruit and um, Ben and I, you know, embraced. Yeah. Yeah, I, re I remember that. What a haunting uh, song. Black bodies swinging in the There were no signs or placards or, you know, anything like that. There were no bullhorns. This was a quiet, small memorial. From the poplar trees. He talked. He explained why this is important to remember uh, we're standing at the base of, you know, the base of the tree where where Claude Neal's body hung in 1934, and so it was a powerful moment. You're looking at this beautiful tree, and you think, what does it know? What does it have to be complicit in, you know? You would look at that tree on the courthouse lawn, and it's now falling over, and it's kind of, it's almost, it feels like a weeping willow. It's kind of, it's not as an oak, but it's so old, and it's so weighted down. You can see that it's like been through something. Here is a strange and bitter cry. Spending two years working on this story completely changed the way I saw race in America. I used to think growing up that racial lynchings happened a long time ago. They were the stuff of history books. Uh, this was a front and center reminder that these crimes and barbaric acts are still with us. You know, Allie Mae Neal was two years old. This woman I'm interviewing was two years old at the time her father was murdered by 5,000 people. Um, everyone in that family has inherited the trauma from that experience, whether they were alive or not, that made it real to me. It made it real to me today and to, to my readers. Uh, and it upped the importance of us acknowledging these things and discussing them and, and remembering them.
since Charleston. I call my parents. I remind them to lock the doors of the church. I beg them not to let anybody in they do not know. Every time my father leaves the house, I'm calling him to see if he's made it home safely. And when you see people driving nine hours to El Paso to do harm, I am constantly afraid that it could happen again because it is happening. It is happening. It has not changed. We're still holding on to America's original sin, which is the lie that whiteness, white maleness, white cis male straightness is the identity, the only identity that is the supreme identity that matters. We're still holding on to that lie. That hasn't changed. Lamar Wilson is a poet and assistant professor of creative writing at Wake Forest University. And I met him this summer at the Ragdale Artist Residency, where he shared his poetry and lots of stories about growing up in Mariana, Florida. Big thanks to the Ragdale Residency for giving me the space to start working on this episode. Thank you to Jane Gilvin of NPR's Rad Team for research assistance. Leah Danella and Steve Drummond edited this episode and I produced it. And a big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kumar Devarajan, Jess Kung, L.A. Johnson, and Natalie Escobar. Our interns are Isabella Rosario and Diane Lugo. And you can check out our Black History Month playlist on Spotify. Just search for Black History Month and you will find us there. And if you noticed one person's name missing in that list, it's Adrian Florido. He is actually moving on to NPR's national desk. He's going to be covering news uh, for our broadcast shows, but he will come back and do stories for us every once in a while. And we just want to say big thanks to Adrian, but he's not going too far. So Good luck, Adrian. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. Each of us is the star in the movie of our life. But how much of a role do we play in other people's movies? It was a really sort of palpable fear that they were going to reject me or worse. The unseen pressures we place on other people. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR.